I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. In today's episode, we're going to find out what really happens in a cyber incident response. We're talking to Luke Green and Josh Sudbury. On the show today, we peek behind the curtain of a cyber incident response. Nowadays, unfortunately, we hear all too often about cyber attacks and data breaches. But what really happens in response to a cyber incident? Who gets involved and what work is actually done to stop and respond to the attack? To answer those questions, I asked Luke Green and Josh Sudbury to come on the show. Luke Green is a breach response services manager from Beasley Breach Response. Beasley is one of the largest cyber insurers in the world. My other guest is Josh Sudbury. He's the managing principal of forensic investigations at Lodestone, which is a company owned by Beasley that provides managed cyber threat detection and also provides cyber incident response services. Luke and Josh explain how the bad guys get into the computer networks and how companies like Lodestone stop the intrusion and clean up the mess caused by the cyber intruders. They also offer tips about how to protect against cyber attacks and emphasize that education about cyber threats goes a long way into preventing them. It makes sense that Josh got into cybersecurity. Tech is in his blood. Not only does he have a programming background, as he tells us, his dad does too. Luke also comes from a tech background. Apropos to the podcast, Luke was into legal tech. While working on his law degree, Luke worked on some apps that helped with access to justice issues. Prior to my role at Beasley, I went to Hofstra Law School. I did a number of legal technology programs and kind of post-graduation, I I turned that into a, a fellowship in legal technology. It was very exciting. You know, I, I learned a lot about the field, spent a lot of time on document automation and really kind of increasing the, the access to justice for people just across the board. One of my big projects was the development of a web-based guided interview for pro se litigants to file for child support in family court. Basically, if somebody didn't have an attorney and it was a, a non-contested child support, they would go through a guided web-based form that took you step by step. Did you design that or did you use an app? I designed it. Um, it, it used a, a software called Access to Justice, um, which is kind of like a front end um, guided interview platform. And then the back end, it used a program called Hot Docs. So then how do you make the jump from the legal tech, the access to justice world to cyber? I know obviously cyber is tech based. So I always knew that I, w- I was particularly interested in privacy. I discovered it you know, during law school. A friend of mine had been active with IAPP. And, you know, I was like, you know, I want to do that. And so, you know, I went out, got my certifications, the CIPPUS, CIPM. And, you know, from there, I, you know, I started looking for jobs in the space, you know, knowing that I'll be able to apply the legal tech expertise and and passion, you know, in the role. So, you know, I I got the job at Beasley uh, doing the breach response and kind of the, you know, the rest there is history. But it's, you know, it's been, it's been quite a ride. I've been doing it for four years now. And Josh, you're with Lodestone, which is owned by Beasley, and it was set up by Beasley. Tell about your background. How do you get there? What did you do prior? Well, so for me, you know, technology and being exposed to technology started when I was really young. Uh, my dad was a programmer, uh, and he started teaching me coding when I was like five or six. So my exposure to tech has kind of been the overarching theme. Of- what language was he teaching you? He was doing COBOL programming back in the day. And so it was real basic stuff. And of course, when Windows 3.1 came out, uh, learned the command line and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's it's been a long road. Uh, but I started in tech uh, kind of in, in junior high, high school, 
got you know internship programs doing IT type work. Got into college and got a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from the University of North Texas. Uh, and from there, I went into to programming. I worked in a bunch of different fields uh, in the pharmaceutical industry to start. Then I worked in the uh, the nuclear industry, writing software for the nuclear industry. From there, I hopped into um, kind of advertising agency stuff, uh, working there, uh, which was a kind of a strange jump. Uh, and then I got my my first kind of consulting gig doing uh, energy trading and risk management software implementations. And that took me around the globe, a couple of years in Australia, a couple of years over in London, all over Europe and South Africa, and then uh, moved back to the States and took a job with Verizon working their uh, incident response group, doing digital forensics incident response. Uh, and I was there up until uh, I hopped ship to uh, head over to Verizon or head over to Lodestone. And tell me, what's the elevator pitch for Lodestone? What do you guys do? So Lodestone is a full services you know, security company, cybersecurity company. We are there to help Beasley Insureds get better at security. Our whole goal is to make sure that whoever we're working with, you know, whether it is Beasley Insured or not, is better off after they've, they've you know, security-wise uh, than, than they were after before we got started. We have a little bit of that save the world complex. Uh, we want to make sure everybody is more educated and aware of what's going on out there and how to solve these problems and, and how to be better protected against the, the threats that exist. And you, you guys do prophylactic work, you do monitoring, you do the managed services, but then you also do the incident response. Correct. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we run the whole gambit. A lot of it stems from being a, a DFIR company. Obviously, we, we get incidents. Uh, we kind of start there. And then we offer additional services that kind of you know follow through with that to kind of help maintain and, and continue to monitor and, and help build that relationship with a company to make sure that they've always got a security expert available to them, which is really what we, we want to do. We want to make sure that companies out there have an option when it comes to, hey, I, I don't know what to do, or maybe I, you don't have somebody, or I don't know what the, what the latest threats are. Who do I talk to? How do, how do I get these things fixed? How do I prepare myself? Uh, and that's really what we're there for. And Luke, how do you introduce Lodestone to the Beasley's insured as a prophylactic measure? How do you, how do you introduce the services? So from a prophylactic side, you know, the, in the pre-breach space, we have lots of insureds that'll reach out to us, you know, ahead of incidents, you know, wanting introductions to, you know, to, to, to people who can help them improving their networks, who are looking for the network hardening, penetration tests, and you know, of course, Lodestone it is our go-to. You know, of, we, we you know we love Lodestone, so you know we're on a regular, very regular basis setting up, helping set up calls. You know, we also have a risk management portal, and there's, and there's a lot of, of references to, um, to Lodestone on there, and, and with different connections, we provide a lot of opportunities for our insureds to gain access to Lodestone because you know, I mean, not only are they becoming a more secure company, but they become a better risk, you know, as an insured. So it's a win-win for everybody. You know, everybody knows they need cyber insurance. Hopefully, they have it. But what is cyber insurance? What's it cover? What are the components? So my company handles it a little differently than some of the others. We have the policy divided into two parts. There's the traditional uh, coverage side, which covers regulatory uh, outreach, uh, costs for data recovery, lawsuits, and then the part where I fall into under bre the breach response side of the policy. It has separate limits, separate retentions, and it provides access to legal services, is a privacy and cybersecurity council, uh, computer forensics, you know, companies like Lodestone, notification and call center vendors. So, you know, when you're getting th that letter, 
in the mail that says, oh, you know, your information was impacted. You know, it's the this is the company that's doing the actual mailing and, and running those call centers that you'll call into. And then also things like uh, credit monitoring and, and PR and crisis management if it's necessary. What are your expectations as an insurer of the insured? What do you expect them to do to prevent against the risk? If they've not hired Lodestone yet, just as a, as a minimum level of, of protection. That's a big question in the industry right now. The expectations have certainly evolved as the, you know, the, the, the threats have evolved. Things like multi-factor authentication, you know, whether they run an uh, endpoint uh, detection and response tool or they work with, with a company like Lodestone uh, for an MDR or managed detection and response service, that is certainly something that the underwriters look upon favorably uh, when it comes time for underwriting. And, and you know, that can result in, in better premiums or, and, or, you know, just kind of being seen as a, as a better risk. We've talked pre-breach here. Let's talk about what happens when there's an incident. They call Beasley and say, hey, we've got a problem. We think, think we've been had unauthorized access or whatever it is. What happens on your end? What, what's, the, what's the first step? What do, what do you guys do at Beasley? You know, it's coming in to, to one of our distribution channels so that way our whole team sees it. You know, it's triaged either myself or, or another member of my team. We're getting on the phone with them, you know, right away. Obviously, you know, these, these sort of situations, uh, you know, depending on the circumstances can be pretty uh, you know, can pretty urgent. You know, my team handles everything from from HIPAA to you know to ransomware to massive global cyber attacks. So we're really seeing a lot of different things, and and there's a lot of overlap too. You know, you have plenty of health systems that have, that have been impacted by cyber incidents where you know you're, you're looking at 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 HIPAA. So it's coming into our team, and then you know we're we're getting on the phone, and then we're gonna we're gonna say, okay, you know, here's my role. Tell me what's going on. You know, we'll talk through it. And then from there, I said, oh, here's my recommendations for an action plan. It's like, okay, let's say that, you know, um, a company's email was compromised and they, you know, it had sensitive data in it. So I'm going to say, okay, the best approach for this is probably going to be to bring in outside privacy and cybersecurity council in addition to Lodestone. And, you know, from there, we'll, you know, we'll set up a scoping call where we'll talk through the issues. Uh, you know, Josh will have some some technical questions uh, for for their IT team. And what kind of questions are those, Josh? What, what questions would you ask on that scoping call? Well, so it's really going to depend based on the, the type of incident, right? The, the main thing is for us to get uh, sort of a, a detailed timeline breakdown of, you know, number one, where did this start? When did you first notice it? Um, what's happened since then? You know, what sort of remediation efforts have you taken? What sort of, you know, security you know, changes have you made? Um, what evidence is there to potentially preserve? Um, our whole goal is to get a full layout and understanding of what's been happening, where things are at now. So then that way we can talk about what is going to happen next. And from there, that's really where everything else flows, which is we're going to custom tailor our approach and what we're trying to do uh, and what we need to preserve and what we're going to analyze based on the incident that's you know presented and, and kind of what we what information we have at that time. So it's, it's very much a fact-finding exercise. And short of ransomware that your system's locked and they say pay us money, if you don't have endpoint detection or you don't have a managed service like Lodestone to monitor to your environment, how are insureds put on notice that, hey, they might have had an incident? Someone might be snooping around their, their network. So with ransomware, generally it's it's whenever they see the ransom note uh, on the desktop, right. or you know some sort of message pops up that says, "Hey, your files have been encrypted, or we've taken your data, and you want to pay us, or else we'll release your your dirty secrets to the to the internet." And that's generally when people notice, especially with ransomware, because the the ransomware piece is the most loud 
and obvious sort of impact to the business. Um, it's not the biggest threat in the network, uh, but it is definitely the most uh, observed. But what about if it's not ransomware, like solar winds, like there's somebody snooping around for a long time? Like, how do you finally figure that out that someone's someone's on your system? In things like solar winds, um, generally it comes down to there being some sort of you know some sort of somehow the company's notified or or recognizes that they've had information information leaked out on the internet. Uh, either people who you know scour those sort of dark websites and and find out what's being released and then notify people that way. Sometimes it comes in from governmental agencies, the FBI. The Secret Service, things like that, they they monitor those those sort of traffics and, and information out there, uh, and then they'll notify companies that they think that they've been compromised. We used to see a lot of that when we do when there was a lot of uh, e-commerce and, and credit card uh, compromise cases. You would generally get notified from the Secret Service or the FBI or the CIA, uh, you know, certainly not maybe not even CIA, the Secret Service, and then from there, a company would go, okay, clearly if if our data or our customers are out there, then that means we've had a compromise or a breach. So then they would start investigating. Sometimes with solar winds, you'll have a, a security company doing some open, you know, web research. They'll they'll notice something strange, um, and then some security researcher might post a bug bounty or you know something that alerts someone to their potentially being a vulnerability. Then a company goes, okay, maybe we should check, and lo and behold, they'll find that they've got uh, an incident. So Luke, back to you. We've had the scoping call. You kind of got your head around what happened. What's the next step from there? What's the, what do you, what's Beasley doing behind the scenes? So behind the scenes, you know, we're going to be taking a look at that scope of work that's going to be put together based on the scoping call. And, you know, importantly, on that scoping call, there's also going to be privacy counsel. And, you know, they have, have a, a twofold role. You know, of course, most obviously, they're going to be advising on whether there's any obligations under state breach notification law, under federal regulations like HIPAA, or any other state or federal regulations that, that could come into play. But the kind of the secondary reason why why legal is usually recommended uh, upfront along with forensics is that they're going to be able to engage that forensics firm on the insured's behalf in order to protect the work by attorney-client privilege and work product doctrine to the maximum level that it is allowed. Right, because what you're alluding to there is that Capital One case that came down that if you hire a cyber company prior to litigation, some of that communication with them might not be privileged because it wasn't as a result of an incident or litigation, right? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that's definitely something that we take very seriously and that we, you know, we recommend for our insureds. So the statement of work is written out. It's, you know, it's a three-party agreement. The law firm is the client and the law firm and the insured um, will sign with them. And so once we have that statement of work, it's, um, it's usually sent either directly to the law firm or to the law firm and, and the insurance company at the same time first uh, for review. Behind the scenes uh, with my company, our claims team reviews it in consultation with you know with somebody from my team. And it's like, all right, does this look reasonable? And you know, we see a lot of them, so we're you know, we're usually able to tell right up front. It's like, okay, this is this is great. And then you know, we turn that around, and obviously, everybody who works in this space understands the urgency of these situations. So we're coming at this uh, on an expedited basis, and so we turn that around and say, okay, you know, this is approved or or it's not. But you know, in most cases for this purposes here, let's say it's, say it's approved. And then we'll, you know, give that information over to the law firm, the forensics firm. That way they can pass it on to the insured and then sign the engagement and things can kick off. When we come back, Luke and Josh talk about how the bad guys get into computer networks. They also explain the importance of cybersecurity education. All right, we're going to get back to my conversation with Luke and Josh in just a second. 
But I want to let you know that if you go to tlpodcast.com, there's an episode page for this episode along with every other episode. And on those pages, you can find more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talked about. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Luke Green and Josh Sudbury. We pick up with the guys as they explain how the bad guys get into a company's computer network. So you've got your team in place. You got your, you got your attorney in place. You got Lodestone, your forensics company in place to start doing the work. But before we get there and talk about the black box that is the cyber incident response, I think it might be helpful to talk about how people get in. You talked about email. Uh, you talked about email compromise, which I assume a lot of times will happen from phishing or a lost password. How are other ways that cyber attacks occur? How are people getting in? Right now in the state of business email compromise, the big thing is, well, there's been two main things this year. The first one was the Hafnium incident. The Hafnium incident was a set of vulnerabilities with the uh, Microsoft Exchange web server, OWA, Outlook Web Access. And those vulnerabilities allowed threat actors from across the internet to scan the entire internet, find systems that were vulnerable to these things, and then execute remotely the ability to drop what's called a web shell onto that OWA web server. That web shell then facilitated their access into the environment by giving them remote code execution you know, uh, capabilities, the ability to download additional payloads, uh, the ability to execute commands locally um, and do things like scrape credentials. Once they have the ability to scrape credentials, they could access mailboxes, they could log into the system remotely, and then from there they would spread through the, the environment. And so that's one of the big ones that happened this year. That's a very technical kind of thing that happens, you know, every so often they'll find a, a, a what's called a zero day vulnerability in a system. Um, and so that's, that's a more, you know, that's a, it's a limited sort of thing that happens occasionally. The bigger thing is, um, using O365, um, the always-on web email services uh, these days are, are highly sought after and, and vulnerable because they're always on, they're always available. Um, and the way that companies tend to be compromised through OW or through uh, O365 is through leaked credentials, um, somebody using the same username and password or signing up for some other website or service or, or you know something else and using the same password they use for their work email, for their personal or whatever else, those credentials get compromised on some other site. And then somebody is out there grabbing those credential sets and then trying to log in remotely. The other thing is phishing emails where someone will receive a phishing email, they'll click a link, they'll provide their username and password, uh, and then that'll get compromised. And, and just to be clear, it's they've gotten extremely good at making those phishing emails look very legitimate. It's it's one of those things where it's, it's hard to tell if you aren't technically minded these days. Uh, so you always have to be just very cautious about what you're clicking on. Beyond email, how are they getting? I know remote desktop can be vulnerable. What, what are other ways people get in outside of email? Any sort of remote access solution um, that's not protected by multi-factor authentication is vulnerable to brute force attacks or to just, you know, bad guys trying credentials that they found on the internet. So that includes always on email services like O365. If you're having any sort of online remote connection or remote access service or, or you know some sort of remote you know email program that's available all on the internet all the time, if you're not protected by multi-factor authentication, which is the bare minimum you should have these days, if you don't have that, you're very likely to have a compromise. From your standpoint, from the forensic team standpoint, what's the first thing? You've had your scoping call, you got an idea what happened. What do you what do you do? First thing's containment, right? Making sure that we have the environment contained, which means that we've locked the threat actors out of, of the environment. Whatever it is they're doing, we want to put a stop to it 
first thing. Then from the containment, we want to try to understand what's happened, uh, and that comes into evidence preservation, and then remediation, getting the business back up and running. But containment's the first step. And really what that's about a lot of times, especially in ransomware, is like we, we talked earlier about how the, the ransomware is the most visible thing, but it's not the biggest threat. The biggest threat is the tools that the threat actors use to maintain a foothold in the environment. Things like Trojans, reverse shells, you might hear these you know, technical terms. Really what it is, is it's a way for a threat actor to maintain control over systems in the environment. So the first thing is often disconnect everything from the internet. Just pull the internet plug or you know, pinhole the firewall to allow just our EDR agent to communicate through it, but no other traffic. Uh, and what that allows us to do then is look at the environment as a whole, figure out what's been impacted, what hasn't, what do we need to preserve, um, and just kind of get that insight and visibility into the environment to know we've got it locked down, the bad guys are out, now we have to focus on the next steps. Which is remediation? So the next step, yeah, your remediation. So in, in line with remediation, because you know these days it's all about getting the, the, the business back up and running as quickly as possible, um, especially when you're dealing with ransomware, it can be extremely impactful to a business. Uh, and, and there's a human element that I don't think gets addressed in a lot of these things. It's, it's a very stressful time for, for a lot of people. You know, uh, you know, C-level executives are worried about you know, their business being up and running, whether or not they're going to be able to make payroll next week. Um, IT staff can often feel you know, frustrated or scared that they're going to have you know, some sort of repercussion for it happening on their watch, the emotional aspect of things can run high. Uh, and so really what we're there to do is to kind of, you know, kind of hold everyone's hair back while they're <laughs> having a, a bad time uh, and make sure everybody's doing okay uh, and that we're, we're all on the same page about how to move forward. So the evidence preservation will happen in line with the remediation in parallel. So we can target the systems we need to collect to do the forensic analysis and to really understand what happens. And then at the same time, work with them on a plan for remediation, which is, you know, oftentimes with, with malware, the, the only real way to make sure it's clean is to like wipe the system and then reinstall. Which we haven't talked about. It's the importance there. You need backups. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and well, it depends because you know sometimes depending on how often you do backups and how long the threat actor was in the environment, you might be restoring from a backup that may be tainted. Uh, and so you have to be really careful even with backups. But the backups are a good thing, and I, we always recommend that. So once you have the ability to restore from backups, or you're, you're burning down and reinstalling systems, that comes in line with segmenting the network, making sure you have a clean environment and the the, the dirty environment, and then anything that's going to go into the clean environment has to be rebuilt, uh, and then brought up in a, in a clean sort of fashion. So when you're doing the remediation, the forensic analysis, what tools are you using? So we'll use any tool that we kind of need to. Uh, I think that what it really, you know, a lot, a lot of companies, you know, specify one tool or another. Um, Lodestone is tool agnostic. Um, we use the right tool for the job. Saying that, you know, you use one particular tool over another is like saying, um, well, I use a particular type of hammer or a particular type of saw. I, I kind of like to do woodworking on, on the side. You can do a lot of things with uh, any particular tool. It's about knowing that tool and being good with that tool. And I think any real forensicator or any good security company will tell you it's really about understanding how to use the tool to get to where you want to go. Uh, and I think that's really where Lodestone's expertise shines. But the tools, not to talk about specific tool or anything, but, but the tools are, it's stuff that, that gets in a network, analyzes log activity, 
locks down the information. It's forensic tools. Yeah, so what we'll do for containment is we'll throw out an, an EDR or MDR type solution, a tool out there to monitor, sort of give visibility into the network and containment. From a forensic information collection standpoint, we'll deploy additional remote forensic tooling or we'll provide collection scripts in order to collect you know, physical images, memory dumps, uh, you know, volatile information, uh, forensic level data. And then we'll take all of that to our, our lab uh, where we'll actually do the analysis. Uh, and we have a suite of forensics tools out there that you know our guys use in order to kind of make sure we're getting all of the right information out of that to answer those hard questions. That's sort of the categories we would talk about would be like the EDR type tooling versus like a forensic collection and, and kind of analysis tool. And Luke, while all this is going on, obviously council's involved, they're interfacing with Lodestone. What's the insurer doing? What, what, what are you guys doing when all this response is going on? From our side, from from my team's side, from the services side, you know, we're we're running a, a long track. We're making sure everything is going smoothly. If the insured has questions about the process, you know, we're um, you know serving as an interface there, you know, helping them along. And and you know, I, I'll say this to to a number of our insureds is that you know we're we're here to to work through this uh, with you together. From the claim side, our claims team is going to be working with them as they have coverage questions along the way. You know, for, from our side, you know, if they have a questions about it's like all right, you know, what are the next steps? You know, if you know, if we do find that there is a compromise, we're advising them on the you know potential notification, how that that might look like. This is the same thing in in conjunction with uh, legal can provide uh, a lot of that that similar advice. You know, my team. I mean, we we've handled over twenty thousand breaches since two thousand nine. We just passed that threshold in in February. So, you know, we were able to really relay that experience into, you know, helping our insurance through incidents. And, and you know, when you have these incidents like the Hafnium uh, exchange incident that had happened, you know, obviously it's a terrible situation. But the benefit of so many people being impacted is that we're able to take that information we're learning from one insured that's impacted and it helps enhance our recommendations for the next insured that's going to be reporting in. So, you know, you do... Um, you know, there is that benefit of that that shared knowledge. So we're you know we're able to you know help them through the process quicker to aggregate resources um, with the lodestones of the world. It's like okay, well you know we'll co let's come up with a streamlined process for handling these. You know that the law firms are able to represent multiple companies impacted, and and as a result, you know streamlined communications with the you know potential. Uh, impacted vendor, for instance. So, you know, we're helping uh, just with that coordination throughout the whole process and, and helping helping make sure things run smooth. You know, this is a difficult time for the insured. So our, our role is to help make it a little easier. And Josh, so we've talked about phases one and two. You've got the remediation. You've, you've, you've tackled the problem. You've isolated it. You've, you've hopefully gotten rid of it. What's the final stage? What are you, what are you doing at the end of the response? So the big thing that we're kind of doing once we kind of do the evidence preservation and, and also sort of in parallel with the, the remediation is the forensic analysis and monitoring the environment, um, you know, just ensuring that things are clean and, and you know, there's no more bad activity. The th threat actors don't come back, uh, which sometimes happens. You don't pay the ransom. Sometimes they, they try to come back. So we're, we're there to kind of help, you know, ensure that doesn't happen and, and keep them locked out for good. The forensic investigation is really there to answer two main important questions. Number one, what happened and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? And then number two, 
from a legal perspective, was there any data access or exfiltration? And that obviously goes to, you know, the, the notification obligations that may exist, you know, per state based on the type of data you're dealing with. So the forensic investigation is there to provide the answers, um, the answers to the tough questions. And sometimes they're tough questions and sometimes they're questions companies don't necessarily want to poke at the answers to. But if you really want to properly represent the risk to the insurer, to the company, to let them, you know, manage that appropriately and ensure that they're protected against that, you have to be able to do a, a full forensic analysis and really understand what what the root cause here is, that, that root cause analysis. And then from there, we'll do anything that we have to do in order to help an insured get better at security. And that's really the ultimate goal, right? You have this problem we're going to help you through it. We're going, to, we're going to make sure it's taken care of appropriately. We're going to get you the answers to those tough questions. And then at the end of that, we're going to say, all right, now how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Let's, let's talk about that. So education, that's part of it right there. So obviously, if you had an incident, it's you're late to the game, but you still, education is very important. Like, So what do you recommend there? Like, what should companies do at a minimum from an education standpoint to try to prevent against this stuff? It all kind of depends on each individual company and kind of what their approach wants to, you know, should be. But you're right. Education is kind of the, the big thing. We don't believe in their the black box of forensics. We believe in educating anyone and everyone who wants to learn about these things that they should be aware and, and have that information. We have internally a, a, with Beasley something called Lodestone Academy, where we help educate Beasley and <laughs> hopefully soon brokers and, and maybe even one day insureds on sort of the, the world of cybersecurity uh, and all aspects of that. And so when it comes to an individual company and their sort of learning and, and training, we have proactive services that we'll offer where we'll have, you know, VC so services and, you know, all those other sort of things. Well, anything that we need to do on that front. But, but the education aspect is, is really about understanding what happened and, and making sure that everyone in the company from the C-level all the way down to the individual IT people on the boots on the ground are aligned in where they're headed as far as security. There's no such thing as perfect security, and it's an upward hill sliding scale. You want to talk about absolute security, don't have computers, don't have employees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really have a business at that point. It's not yeah, that's really the answer. Don't have a business, right? Um, that's to be... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't have a business, right? So there's some level of security that you need to be able to maintain without sacrificing your ability to perform as your business. And so that's why all of these things, it, it sounds kind of cliche to say, well, it's tailored to your company, but it absolutely has to be, or else your business approach is going to be impacted by the security measures. And the goal is to make security as convenient as possible, because there's always, there's always going to be some level of inconvenience, but it, the, the goal is to make it as convenient as possible and allow the business to function uh, and do what they need to do, but while protecting you from these you know, sort of risks. And Lodestone Academy, what are the modules or what what are the, the classes? What, what's involved there? So it's actually a very tailored thing. Um, it's one of those things where I actually work with Luke uh, after every you know, Lodestone Academy session to identify what we're going to do for the next session. We've covered everything from our entire forensic process to exactly how we handle ransomware. Our next uh, engagement, next Lodestone Academy session coming up is over uh, our SOC and MDR and EDR tooling and, and how that works. And then I think the next one after that, we were potentially looking at doing sort of a a panel of just experts where we just ask the experts just a full hour and a half of anything and everything you can throw at us. We'll get you answers to everything you want. So again, our, our hope there is, to, is it's education, right? It's all about what is it that you guys feel you need to know. Um, and so from there, we'll go put together, you know, a, a 
training module, you know, explaining or demonstrating or walking through the details. And we'll we'll make it as high level or as technical as you like. Uh, the feedback we've gotten from Beasley has been like, wow, us with that technical stuff as much as possible. So uh, we tend to try to err, err on the side of that with them. But um, we're, we're happy to kind of do that in other ways. But we can, you know, there's there's always an opportunity there to do tabletop exercises and, and all sorts of training opportunities with insureds coming into speaking engagements, anything that they need in order to understand the risk that is is around out there on the Internet and how to protect themselves from it. Why isn't this required like of, of insureds? Like wh why isn't education required from an insurer's standpoint? Any company that has uh, education provides that access to their employees. They're a more secure company, and, and it's a you know it's more. Uh, a friend of mine used the term uh, cyber sustainability, which I really liked. Uh, you know, it's a more sustainable company from the cyber side. And what Beasley does is we have our, our risk management portal. It's award winning, and we have a number of training modules that we are constantly updating on there that are are available just. By virtue of being a policyholder, anybody has access to it, and they can have all of their employees take part in the training. They can track uh, who's who's done the training. We put up tip sheets. We have a we have one on how to harden your Office 365 environment, which I helped draft. We have things on it's like okay you've been hit by ransomware what are our next steps we have sample contract language uh, with regards to, to data protection we have template incident response plans so we, we try to make as much material as possible available for our insurers because I mean Josh hit it right on the head you know I'm, the more information that an organization has the better decisions they're going to be able to make with regards to their security and with regards to just being a, you know, yeah, more secure company. Okay. Before I let you guys go, if some of the listeners out there, their companies don't have a mature cybersecurity program, what do you want them to do? What, what's the first couple steps they can take to start hardening their systems and protecting against the cyber incidents? I think from Lodestone's perspective, our first recommendation would be get a cybersecurity you know, partner. Find a company that works for you, whether it's Lodestone or not. Although personally, I think Lodestone's the best. Get a cybersecurity partner. Have them help you. The, the reason is that the landscape is so large and changes so quickly these days that unless you have a cybersecurity expert, you may not have all the latest and greatest up-to-date information on, on best practice and all that sort of stuff. So if that's our job. That's what we do. We, we recommend getting a, a cybersecurity partner. And Luke, what do you tell the insureds? Like, what's the first thing they should do? First thing I tell people is to make sure they have multi-factor authentication enabled. You know, that that saves a lot of heartache. But beyond that, you know, obviously making sure that they have cyber insurance is a key thing because, you know, that, you know, when an incident happens that, you know, they're not only do they have that, that potential for coverage, but they also have that expertise that, that they have access to. And the insurance company is going to have, have vetted the vendors and, you know, they're, they're going to make sure that the right people are going to be brought in and are going to be recommending the right people to help guide you through that incident. Fellas, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, Luke, if people want to learn more about the Beasley Incident Response Crew, where do they go? Sure. So uh, Beasley.com, as well as Beasley.com slash cyber services, has um, an outline of our services and, and, and the team and, you know, the access that uh, to information that's uh, available for uh, for insurance. And Josh, they want to learn more about Lodestone. Where do they go? Lodestone.com. That's L-O-D-E stone.com. All right, that's all we got for today. Appreciate you listening. Before I let you go, Luke and Josh wanted to make sure you understood that this podcast was just for informational purposes and that insurance coverage is subject to the terms and conditions of the policy. 
If you have any questions about that, please suggest you go to Beasley.com. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcast platforms. If you like us enough, hope you give us a favorable review and tell a friend. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.